0: Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host Kate Campbell brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Hi, Amy. Welcome back to the How To Money podcast.
1: Good to be back, Kate.
0: Now, this is part two of our Property 101 episode, and this is for people who have done their research, sorted their finance, got their brief together, and have started looking for professionals and Amy's going to cover all of the things that you need to think about when you're ready to buy.
1: So when we're ready to buy, we ideally, we've done all of our homework beforehand. So we've, like you said, we've done our research. We've. You don't necessarily have to have your pre-approval in place just yet, but you should be at least having those wheels in motion and be organizing it. A pre-approval only generally lasts for 90 days. So there is no point in actually getting one until you are ready to go. But once we have one in place or we're very, very close to having our finance sorted, then we need to start being really proactive around finding properties. Now, there's that obvious way of finding a property, which is jumping on the internet. And there are some tips and tricks I have there, which is using the um, section where you can save your search and you can get alerts and using the map function. So you make sure you don't miss anything. But what I'll highlight today, and this is something that a lot of people don't know, is off-market properties. Have you heard of them before?
0: I think I only heard of them in your podcast, uh, those sort of (laughs) secret properties that they don't really go on the apps or the market and then sometimes that you have to talk
1: directly to the property agents to find out about them. Exactly. So think of it kind of like the dark web in that you can't search for it. You can't Google it. And the only way to know about it is to be given an address from a real estate agent and people might think, well, why would a vendor ever sell off-market? Isn't putting it online the best way to get the best result and the best price? And yes, in most cases it is, but some vendors will want to sell off-market for personal reasons, privacy reasons. They might want a really big price and the agent might you know, not say, look, let's try and sell it off-market beforehand. And if we can get that price, great. And if not, you know, we'll see how we go. Sometimes they'll have five kids and they just don't want to do two opens a week. There's so many different reasons. And an off-market property, it can be really good because you're going to have less or sometimes no competition. But they can also be a bit more challenging to work with because that vendor is generally less motivated. They might not have paid any marketing yet. They might be one of those you know head-in-the-sky vendors that want too much money. So I always say they can be really good, but don't get your hopes up too much because the vendors can be a little bit more challenging to work with. Mm.
0: Have you ever had a case where someone just knocked on the door and said, can I buy your property?
1: Well, that's an interesting one. So first of all, if you're ever having a vendor selling the property without a real estate agent, and I have bought properties from vendors directly before, they are very difficult to deal with because they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) if they're trying to save some money by not using an agent, what does that say about them? They're generally going to be more difficult to negotiate with. Versus like you've just said, if you knock on a door or if you're, just say you're a tenant and you want to buy the property you're living in, but that owner didn't really have an intention of selling, well, generally, those owners are going to say, oh, well, if I could get a really great price, then I might sell. But if not, don't bother. So you might have to pay a premium in those situations. So Yeah, that's the less desirable method. I always want to have a real estate agent involved if possible.
0: Yeah. So, what are your tips for finding properties online?
1: So, finding properties online is setting up your search at the very start. So, plugging in all of the suburbs that you're looking at. This is with our property brief, like we talked about in part one. So, our property brief is our suburbs, our price range, and our characteristics. My tip with using these online tools is there's filters which we can apply. Now, the only filters I ever recommend applying are the price filters and the bedrooms. Everything else is sometimes inaccurate because it relies on agent input and sometimes agents don't put things incorrectly. So if you start filtering too much, you're going to cull out a lot of potential properties that do tick your boxes. So I only work with price range and bedrooms. With price range, when I think a lot of people in Melbourne and Sydney will know this already, but the advertised price range for an auction isn't necessarily the price the property is going to go for. So just keeping that in mind. But with a private sale, generally, if there's a fixed price, that price is negotiable. So with an auction, just make that search band a little bit broader. And with a private sale, just say your budget's 600000 and there's properties there that are six fifty. you might still want to look into those and see if the vendors negotiable. So don't restrict your price range too much there.
0: Mm, and I've heard stories of sometimes like an actual house or a duplex is put into the apartment category. So people might miss out on really good places because they're just looking at one specific category, not uh, having a broad search like you mentioned. That's the
1: most unreliable filter, that property type box. So we never tick that.
0: Yeah. And I thought the I was playing around with the app earlier this year and I thought it was quite cool how it sends you notifications. And when something on your, when you like star something it adds to your wish list. when it gets sold, you get told um, how much it went for. So it's quite good once you start having a look at things you're interested to see what they're selling for once they go to auction or private sale. I mean, not all the prices seem to be disclosed. Some said just like price withheld.
1: Yeah, you know, you don't know vendors don't have to disclose at all. So if you're looking through and just say you want to keep an eye on something, you can click the little star button or the save button and then you can always go back and see what they've sold for later on. If it says price undisclosed, I always recommend just giving that real estate agent a call and say, "Hey, I'm just in the market, I'm doing my research. Are you able to tell me what this property sold for?" And most of the times if you ask politely, they're happy to tell you. Otherwise, you can say, look, if you can't tell me, can you give me a rough ballpark? In which case you can then write it down and then keep all of that in your notes. The more research you've had and the more notes that you've got, it means when the time comes to start analyzing a property and doing your research on how much it's worth, the more data you've got to work with. Mm.
0: And when when you're actually having a look at some properties, do you recommend uh, actually starting the conversation with some agents and giving them your brief and saying, can you send me some properties that
1: might fit this? Yeah, absolutely. So you need to be really proactive with your agent communication. Now, bear in mind, only do this and only start hassling them when you're ready to buy. If you're nowhere near get ready to purchase and you don't have your pre-approval for quite a while, you're just going to annoy them if you're not ready to go. You can absolutely introduce yourself and say, hey, I'm planning on buying in three months or six months. Nice to meet you. I'll be back in touch when I'm ready. But when you really are ready, then you want to introduce yourself. You want to let them know what your brief is. Now, here's a tricky thing that first home buyers always get worried about is, do I tell them my budget? <laughs> this is, this is um, something that you need to Think about what you're going to say before you start talking to real estate agents. And my recommendation here is to give them a rough range. Don't tell them necessarily exactly how much you've got, but just say you've got 550000 to spend. You might say something like circa early fives or circa 500 with a little bit of flexibility there, but you don't want to be downplaying it too much because if you downplay it too much, they're not going to send you appropriate properties. And then I would also just be telling them what your bare minimum requirements are, which might be, you know, two bedrooms in these four suburbs for an apartment. You don't have to tell them, I'd love it if I had a garage and then I'd love space for my dog. If you give them a wish list of 20 things, they're going to tune out. So just that budget and your non negotiables. And from there, I would be just being really proactive with them. So getting in touch with them once a fortnight or once a week because that's how you find those off-market properties. If they don't know what you're looking for and they don't know how much you're going to spend, and if you're not front of mind, they're not going to be calling you about those properties. And for context, for my clients, I send an email out to all of the local real estate agents every single week. And then I also hit the phones and I'm also calling them too, because they don't always read all of their emails.
0: So you're sort of putting yourself into their orbit. So they, they know you exist and they know you're actually a legitimate buyer, you've got the money and what are your non-negotiables So, So that sounds like quite a good strategy to take um, as opposed to just...
1: Yeah, not calling them every day though.
0: (laughs) I think they'd probably blacklist you if you did that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And if you say to them, you know, I'm ready to go and I've got my finance sorted or I've got my pre-approval, then they will be much more inclined to want to start helping you
0: because i always find that the whole concept of agents is quite interesting because they they're working for the buyer, they're working for the seller, they're working for themselves.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, with agents you need to remember that they are getting paid by the vendor, so they are always working for their client. That being said, there's plenty of agents out there who are really helpful with first home buyers and i mean their their ultimate goal is to facilitate a transaction. So they're not going to be so difficult to deal with that they're going to prevent you from doing something. They want to help you, but just always seek independent advice or do your own research. Never rely on what an agent is saying exclusively.
0: Awesome. And so what about when you're ready to actually start looking physically at some of these properties and you want to rock up and go to inspections? I know it's a bit different now, but in sort of general, general terms, how does that all work?
1: Yeah, so when we're doing inspections, my key recommendation here is to take lots of notes. So I personally walk around and I film a video and I talk through the video through as I'm walking along. But if you're at an open for inspection and there's heaps of people around, then this might not be practical, in which case you want to take photos and write down notes. And the kinds of things we're looking for here is firstly, does this property tick my wish list and tick my brief? But then other things like the condition of the property, if there's anything that we feel like we might need to ask our building inspector. If there's any items at the property, we might need to check that's included with the sale. We might want to make some notes on the heating and the cooling situation, any renos we need to do. And especially if you're buying an apartment, we want to write down where that car space is or where the agent's telling us the car space is and the storage cage, And then if there's a courtyard, we want to make sure that we check if that's on our title as well, rather than on common property. So it's just walking around and not relying on your memory. That is very much (laughs) something some people think, oh, I'll definitely remember this. But once you start seeing quite a lot of properties, they do start to blur together. So having those photos and notes to rely on is really important, especially when you want to start doing that further research and start putting an offer together later on.
0: Mm, and I can imagine it'd be quite hard for first home buyers to know exactly what to look for when they're looking at these properties, like um, if there is damage and and like with the amount of wear and tear and whether the kitchen potentially got another 10 years or is going to fall apart next year. I, I think that'd be quite difficult um, to know
1: that sort of stuff. The more you see, and this is why you should start doing this way before you're even ready, the more you see, the more context you'll have. So then that means when you're actually ready to start buying a property, you'll have a bit of a better feel on what you're looking out for. And, you know, the the ultimate job of your building inspector later on is to be able to comment on things like maintenance and damage and structural issues. So I wouldn't stress too much about that. But it's good to just have a good understanding so that you can start preparing yourself for those potential extra costs.
0: Yeah. So what about like that due diligence process? What are the things you've got to think about once you sort of settle on maybe this is the house that I might want to buy? What do I have to look for before I'm ready to put down the money?
1: The first thing that I would be doing is for you to research a little bit more about how much that property might potentially sell for, because we don't want to be then going and spending money on building inspections and arranging contract reviews if that property is definitely going to go way over our budget. So there is a bit of time and effort you have to put in to doing what's called a comparable sales analysis. And what we're doing here is we're going into that sold section. Like we talked about earlier, we've got the for sale, the for rent and the sold section of domain and And then spending time in here to find properties which have sold, which are comparable to our property. And if you're not spending at least an hour on this, then you're not doing it thoroughly enough. Our goal is to get between, I like to get eight, but somewhere between six and 10 properties which have sold as recent as possible. I would say as a rule of thumb, no longer than six months ago, and then comparing apples with apples. So comparing two bedroom apartments of a similar age in a similar location with each other, popping this in a, I like to put them in a price order and then determining if our property is in inferior, superior, or comparable. And then we'll be able to get a relatively good idea of how much this one could sell for. And then if we think it's within budget, and if we think it's feasible, we can move on to the other steps. The next thing I would do, which is free and easy to do, is to contact the local council and to just ask them if there's any development happening, which is either directly next door or perhaps behind our property or maybe you know a super massive apartment block going up on our street anything that could affect us and we can also at this stage look into the zoning and the overlays on our property so this is something that you can google but it's it's quite mumbo jumbo if you haven't <laughs> read about these things before so it could be talking to council and saying hey what's the zoning and overlays and what are the restrictions that this could be for our property is the council pretty forthcoming with that information? You don't they
0: just
1: tell it to you? Yep. Yep. So you can Google, to begin with, you can Google your local council planning scheme. And then you can generally either use the map or pop an address in and see what the zoning and overlays are. Or you can call the council and say, Hey, can you just explain to me what this zoning means or what this overlay means and what how it could impact this property? I've always had great experiences with With calling councils and asking those questions, you would want to speak generally to the planning department within the council. And then we've done our free things. So that's stuff that doesn't cost us anything. And we can do it really quickly if we put a bit of time into it. If the property also has a body corporate, I would be reading through the minutes, reading through the rules. And in Victoria, they have to provide that in the contract. But if you're in a different state, you might need to obtain those. So you might need to pay for a strata report or get it off the agent or the vendor. And at this point in time, I also recommend calling the body corporate manager. And that's because sometimes there can be stuff that is you need to clarify from the minutes. Or if that last meeting at the body corporate was you know, six months ago or 11 months ago, there could be stuff that has happened since that you might not know about. So. Calling them, having a chat to them. And then, if we're happy with all of those things, we can then move on to engaging our professionals. That is our legal representative, which is either a conveyancer or a solicitor. They will then have a look at the contract for you. So, that some of them charge for a review, some of them don't. But a legal review of your contract is 1 billion percent essential when you're buying a property because they will be able to then check if there's any issues with the property or any conditions you need to amend. And then (laughs) if we're happy with all of that, we can then figure out if we want to get a building inspection or not. And depending on the circumstances, we might do this before we put an offer in, or we might make our offer subject to a building inspection. And I recommend getting an inspection always, but this this is optional rather than mandatory. Yeah. And they're
0: they're looking for the termites and the mold.
1: Well, they're seeing, yeah, exactly. They're seeing things that you can't see. So I've even had new buildings, new properties or apartment blocks, which have had issues because the building inspector have, they've fancy things like moisture meters. They can see leaks behind walls. They get on the roof. They look in the subfloor. They see things that you can't.
0: And the, the previous owner's not going to be forthcoming with all the uh, potential issues of the property.
1: <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So you really want to get that independent check. And for the sake of, say, five $600, when you're spending so much money on a property, for me, it's absolutely a no-brainer. Mm,
0: and I know, it's like, properties can be advertised with all sorts of cool things, like underfloor heating. And unless you maybe get the, like, sort of stuff checked or have the ability to test it. I mean, I think, I don't know if it was your podcast, um, but you're saying like um, go and actually test all the um, sort of appliance. Oh, I don't even know what they're called.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're getting a building inspection, not all building inspectors will test appliances. I've trained my building inspectors very well and they always check the appliances for me and they'll make a note of that. But if your building inspector doesn't, then when you're at the inspection or you can organize a second inspection, walk around and test them yourself. This is especially relevant with things like central heating and central cooling because they can be really expensive to replace and repair if they're not working. So then we will test them and then we need to always make sure that when we submit our offer, we've got all of those things noted in the contract. So I'll generally pop an extra condition in my contract saying that all the appliances will be working on settlement.
0: Yeah. So if with our building inspection has passed, we're happy with all that, what do we do when we want to make an offer?
1: Here's the very challenging part because unlike an auction, there are no rules around how a real estate agent handles a private offer process. So depending on what state you're in, but also depending on the real estate agency and sometimes the agent themselves, they'll have a different process to everyone else. So you need to establish at the start all right, hey, Mr. Agent, if I'm planning on putting an offer in, what's your process? What's your rules? How are you going to handle this offer? So things like timeframes, if you get an acceptable offer, how long will I have to be alerted and then be able to make an offer myself? Will you be disclosing offers to everyone or will it be closed envelope? And then will you be doing like a backwards and forwards negotiation or Will it be one one offer only? You've got to ask all of these questions because that will then determine your strategy in putting an offer in. And quite often, especially here in Melbourne, if they receive an acceptable offer from someone else, you might only have 24 hours to do something. And I've had situations before where it's been a couple of hours and that's that's less common, but you want to be prepared and ready for that. So asking all of those questions and then that will help you figure out what your plan is for that offer
0: absolutely and i i think it's probably happens more in the movies but you just sort of get that best and final offer you've got to get it in and you don't know what the other offers are that are
1: <laughs> getting that offers. is the worst oh everyone hates best and final offers so what that means is that you only get one shot to submit your offer you don't know what anyone else's offer or terms are and if you miss out by $500 you don't get a call back it's very It's a very challenging and stressful situation, but a lot of agents do it, in which case you need to put a lot of research into the value of that property and then also figuring out how much it's worth to you as well.
0: Yeah, because there must be, there's probably then you've got to work out your whole strategy itself in what offer you give in and do you give your highest offer? Because often you think there's going to be a negotiation and a bit of back and forward.
1: Well, this is the thing. So if you don't ask at the very start and you just assume, And just say you think you're going to get another callback and it's best and highest, then you you won't get a callback. So you need to clarify that at the start. And with a private sale, we also might have our offer, which is we make an offer which is subject to something happening. It might be subject to finance or it might be subject to a building inspection. And the more conditions we have in our contract, the less exciting it is for a vendor or the less strong our offer is. So then we might need to decide if maybe we do do that building inspection beforehand. Or in some situations, I have clients where they can make an unconditional finance offer and always do that in consultation with your broker. But an unconditional offer with no conditions in there at all is so much stronger. Because if you're a vendor and you have an offer which has no conditions, or if you're a vendor and you have one that is subject to building and subject to finance, which one do you think you'll be more excited to take? And I've had offers before where I have been unconditional and I have been $50,000, $70,000 below a conditional one and I've got that property. So the price discrepancy can be quite a lot depending on the vendor.
0: Yeah, and it depends how quickly they want to get the sale done because if they have to wait for the potential that you have to get finance and the sale might fall through, that could add another month on.
1: Yeah. And especially just say that vendor wants to buy another property and that property is going to auction this weekend. If you can give them an unconditional offer so they can go and then bid on that other property, then they will be more negotiable. I mean, understanding that there's so much more going on here than just price. You know, That's what everyone fixates on, but there's our conditions in there. There's also our settlement timeframes. So there's a lot that you can negotiate on here. Mm,
0: Because I think you got to remember, there's like various things happening in the background. Like someone's selling their house, may have already committed to buying a house, so they need the money to line up. Because otherwise, they could be in a really tough situation as well.
1: Yeah. So if you can line up the settlement dates, then that can be very, very valuable to them, and that can mean that you can sometimes get a bit of a discount in your negotiations.
0: And I guess that could be one of the advantages of a first home buyer is you don't have something else you've got to sell to buy the next house. You're just going from renting or whatever you're currently doing.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And or you just ask the agent at the very start when you're originally speaking to them, you say, hey, what settlement timeframes does this vendor want? And if the agent says a specific date, <laughs> then you generally know they've bought something. Or if the agent says they really want a short settlement, then they obviously prefer or need that money. But if they say, oh, the vendor's super flexible, they, you know, 90, 120 days, that could indicate that the vendor is not as motivated because they don't need the money and perhaps they haven't bought something else yet.
0: Awesome. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about bidding at auction. Uh, I know there's probably a whole can of worms there in terms of what the process is, but how do you sort of approach that and not get carried away with uh, all the excitement?
1: So when you're bidding at auction, firstly, it's important to understand that you can't be subject to anything. So when you buy a property at auction, you're locked in. You don't have a cooling off period. You can't go and get your building inspection done after. So everything needs to be done beforehand. I know that a lot of people get quite stressed out about auctions and it is a stressful environment. But I really like auctions because it's a very transparent environment. You can see all of the other bidders. You know that you can bid in increments slightly above them. And if you plan beforehand, an auction can be a great thing for you. It's the people who are unprepared that struggle with auctions and risk. Sometimes a lot of people say, oh, you know, auctions make people overpay. But I've seen it happen the other way where they're not planned enough. So they stop bidding below where they might have gone to if that was a more, you know, calm negotiation. So the important thing here is to do all of our due diligence beforehand and then set a budget, set that absolute maximum, won't pay a dollar more walk away price before the auction, before the Friday night, (laughs) don't do it on the morning of the auction and then just bid up to that limit and not a dollar more. There's a million strategies I could talk about and that I use as a professional bidder, but if you're a nervous first home buyer, that is my best advice.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, it can be once they start going up in those $500 increments, it can be very easy to start going over your price because it's very easy to justify yourself just $500 more. I'm already spending half a million dollars, just 500 more.
1: Yeah. And once you, if you haven't prepped your price beforehand, and I see this quite often, I'm bidding against someone and I can tell when they get to their limit they had kind of thought about, but not really thought about. And then when they start going over, they might, you know, chat to their partner and nudge them and, you know, say, should we keep going? And I know that they've already exceeded their limit and then I can bid strategically against them. So you don't want to do that. You don't want to have to think during the auction. And my other tip here is to prepare. For what you might say if that property passes in. So, a pass in means that the reserve hasn't been met. So, the reserve is the price the vendor is happy to sell for. And then the highest bidder gets the opportunity to go inside and negotiate with that agent. And people don't prepare for this. And they go inside and they get really nervous. It is the most, it's probably more stressful than the auction themselves because they the agent puts them under time pressure and they then need to negotiate and it's very intimate. You're you know, in the living room and you've got an agent, a professional negotiator there that you're needing to negotiate with. So have a think about what you might say if that happens, whether it's arming yourself with some comparable sales that have sold so that you can justify the value or whatever it is, just thinking about that beforehand.
0: Wonderful. Amy, well, I think that really gave us a great first step to sort of go through some of these steps when we're ready to buy a property. I know there's so much more that you could get into, and I know how passionate you are. So, condensing it into sort of 30 minutes has been a challenge. (laughs) But um, where can people go if they want to learn more about you and your fantastic podcast?
1: Well, like you said, I really like talking about these things. So, I have a first home buyer podcast myself, and it's going to be a total of 30 episodes long. And each episode, we really deep dive into each specific topic that we've talked about. So that podcast is called The Buyer's Bible. It is on all the podcast apps or thebuyersbible.com.au. And for anyone wanting to learn more about me and what I do, my website is amylinardi.com.au
0: wonderful. Well, I'll put that in the show notes and thank you so much for coming on to part two of the property series and uh, sharing some of your knowledge with my listeners. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at HowToMoneyAUS and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money podcast.